Hello? Chuck, is that you? It is me. Is this better, or does it really matter? No, I think it is better. Wait a second. I'm going to take the phone, because my wife says, apparently we have an upstairs and a downstairs. Let me see if this... Okay, there. Is that better? Are, are you upstairs or downstairs right I'm, now? I'm downstairs, but I have both a downstairs phone and an upstairs phone. But I'm downstairs, and I'm on the downstairs phone, which is probably as good as we're going to do. I, I think this is, and I think that we've gotten this far already is a tremendous badge, <laughs> tremendous achievement on our both of our parts here. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. Our guest today is Chuck Porter. Chuck and I met probably close to 15 some odd years ago, and he has been part of the fabric of Advertising Week since the very beginning. He was actually one of our early chairmen, I think right after our first chairman, Ken Case, passed uh, many years ago, and he has been absolutely uh, incredible with us, traveling all over the world. He's keynoted for us in New York, in Sydney. We were thrilled to have him join us in Tokyo a few years ago, and his uh, compassion, his knowledge, his wit... um, He is just an absolute joy to spend time with. And Chuck is a master at an art which is uh, diminishing everywhere. And that is, he is a masterful storyteller. Um, He does it with a cleverness, with a unique style. Uh, There is only one Chuck Porter. I'll often joke with him, playing the role of Chuck Porter today is Chuck Porter. He's a definition of a character in all the right ways and has tremendous character as a person. And the work that the agency has done over the years has been just incredible. And you'll hear about a lot of those legendary campaigns, including Subservient Chicken, which at that moment in time really helped redefine where the industry was and where it's still heading today. So we enjoyed our conversation with Chuck tremendously. I think you will too. So you spent 16 years as a freelancer. Now today in 2020, you know, we're in the, I think what is the early stages of what will become, you know, uh, an economy that's really freelance led in many ways in many industries. Back then, that was not as common. You spent a long time as a freelancer. What What do you recall looking back on that period? You just like that lifestyle? Well, I love that lifestyle, but also, you know, Miami was weird back then because it was, you know, it was a small market, and there were agencies here, but but they were small, and so they really couldn't afford. A lot of them couldn't afford full time talent. You know, they couldn't afford to say, "Okay, we're going to pay you." 200 grand a year. They just couldn't afford it, but they could afford you for a week. So there was a really vibrant free, freelance culture 
in this city at that time. And really, at that time, every agency in Miami was essentially powered by freelancers because just because of the economics of it. So, and I, and I think you're sorry. I think you're I think you're right that the economics of of this industry going forward, I think, is going to favor freelancers. And I think also, you know, people. It's a great life. You know, it's a it's it's a wonderful way to live as long as you can stay busy and don't you know and don't go broke and live under a bridge. Um, but people who are good always stay busy. So, uh, and, and, and we can see it right now. I mean, it's emerging right now. What I've been surprised that there haven't been over the last couple of years, more sort of small agencies, small um, talented agencies emerging. I think it's going to happen because I think, I think kind of small is the new black. Uh, and I think freelance is going to be a part of that, you know, little agencies, who want great talent but don't want them 365 days a year, it's going to be a really great um, a great time for freelancers, I think. Do you remember any of the, uh, the, of the work that you did, that anything that stands out that you look back and you think and, you know, gives you a little bit of a smile all these years later? Um, well, you know, at, at that time, you know, most of the agencies in Miami, I mean, the last few years I was a freelancer, I was working mostly for agencies in New York and London. And, but, but for the first 10 years, basically, I was working for agencies in Miami. And, you know, the big business that they had was tourism. So, I mean, I think at one time or another, I worked on every single South American airline, Land Chile and all of the South American airlines, British West Indies. We did, and we worked for the Jamaica Tourist Board and, you know, a bunch of resorts in the Bahamas. So there was a lot of travel and tourism stuff, um, but we did some really we did some really nice work for Palm Beach tourism. I think back then we did some some really interesting work for Intercontinental Hotels, um, and we did some great work for for these little South American airlines. That um, you know, looking back on it, actually I was going through a bunch of stuff a few months back, and I found these old ads that we did for Land Chile Airlines, and they were shot by Richard Avedon, and they were spectacular. Um, but, you know, I, you know that, that was a long time ago. But it was great because I got to go. I, I, I spent a lot of time traveling, and that was fun. So you're very well known globally within the industry. Um, Alex, who we'll talk about, was also and is also very well known. But in relative terms, not a lot is known uh, about Sam Crispin. Tell us about Sam. Well, you know, Sam had this agency in Miami, and he was a client of mine for a long, long time. Uh, um, and, and he had a lot of travel and tourism business. Uh, mostly his agency was all travel and tourism. He did Jamaica, uh, Jamaica tourism. He did um, some hotel chains. Um, and he was a client of mine, and he was an older guy. He was uh, quite a lot older than me. And for, for probably about seven or eight years, he kept saying to me, you know, why don't you come over here and come to work full time and I'll make you the creative director. And, and I was like, you know, I'm having a good time and da da da. And then, um, uh, I don't know when it was in about 1988. Uh, I, I, my wife told me we had two little girls who were like nine and 10 at the time. And my wife, um, invited me to lunch and told me she was pregnant again and kind of, you know, kind of like maybe you should get a job. 
So that looked more attractive. So I went over there. You know, Sam and I were actually in Jamaica. We had done a presentation to the Jamaica Tourist Board. We were in Jamaica, and he said, look, and drinking some red stripes, and he said, look, here, here's a yellow pad right on here. What do you want to do to come over? So I wrote, well, you know, I want my name on the door and equity, and I wrote a bunch of stuff, and I said, here's what I want. And he looked at it, and he said, okay. And I'm like, okay, well, give it back to me. I had no idea it would be this easy. So anyway, um, and, that, and, then, and that's what we did. And I went over there, and it became Crispin and Porter. And over the, I guess, the first probably two and a half years I was there, um, I got rid of a lot of our clients and a lot of our people and, and brought in Alex Pogusky and some other people. And we started pitching new kinds of clients, and it kind of was exciting. And you had a copywriter background. Alex had an art director background. What was Sam's background? Sam was an account guy, and he was a uh, he was uh, you know a really nice guy and a really smart guy. But he wasn't really an advertising guy. I mean, Sam could just as easily have been in the dry cleaning business or real estate. He was a good businessman, but he wasn't. I mean, I think he liked advertising, but he didn't. You know, he wasn't a passionate advertising guy. Um, and so, you know, the good thing about that was he, he just left you alone. He said, look, you guys know how to make terrific advertising. Just go do it. Um, and so he was a great partner. But he left. I mean, I joined in 88, and I bought Sam out three years later, I think, in either 91 or 92, because he was ready to retire. So I bought out his share of the agency, and he said adios. Um, so then at that point, it was just me and Alex. And, and we left Sam's name on the door. I think, I think we just forgot to change it. I don't really remember. But anyway, so we left Crispin on the door, you know, um, forever. And now, of course, everyone's like, well, you know, did you see the work from Crispin? I'm like, you know, it's Crispin and Porter. Okay. But anyway, that's what happened. Yep. Yep. And where did you meet Alex? Well, you know, I <laughs> I, Alex's father was also a freelancer in Miami. He's a freelance art director, and he did brilliant, brilliant work. Um, and from the first time I moved to Miami, he, you know, I met him, and the writers that I worked with, we worked with him a lot as an art director. And, uh, I mean, he was older than me, but he was really a talented guy. And so when I first joined Crispin, um, we were making some pretty ugly stuff. So we were doing this campaign for for a boat company, um, and I was getting, like, terrible-looking work. So I sent some ads over to Bill Bogusky and said, hey, will you design these? Because, you know, it was a print campaign. And I got the ads back, and I said, these are spectacular. Congratulations, you really uncorked one. And he said, Alex did them. And Alex was his son, and I'd known Alex since he was probably nine or ten years old. And Alex had done them. So I called Alex and said, you know, you ought to come over here and go to work. And I mean, his voice had just changed, you know, and he came over and said, okay, and I, here's how much money I want, which was twice as much as he was worth. Um, so that's when he came. He was, I think, literally 23, um, and he came as an art director and turned out to be a really good one. So he sort of had it in his blood from his dad. I think he did. And his mother was also an artist. She was an artist and a sculptor. So, yeah, he, he, had, um, he had the genes, that's for sure. And he also had 
this crazy passion. You know, he from I mean, from very, very early on, he would look at the industry and, and you know, I, I, and I, I've said this to him before. I said, you know, when I started the agency, what I wanted to do is exactly what agencies do, but better than anyone. What he wanted to do was something else entirely. He wanted to do, if they're doing it, let's not do it. And he had that kind of, you know, sort of that kind of drive and mentality. And also from day one, you know, I'm like, I want to be the best agency in Florida. And he was like, I want to be the best agency in the world. He had big, big dreams and, um, and he had a lot of talent and he was willing to work all the time. And, and I guess that's what it takes. And you were relatively early to the game with a lot of the work you did for Mini, for Domino's, for Burger King. You were very early to what's all the rage today in terms of interactive media and viral marketing. Where did that come from? Well, I think because we were little. You know, we were little. We were a small agency in a small market with small budget generally, um, you know, until we got like Burger King and Mini and got big. But, but, and we, we never had any vested interest in the status quo. When, when, when the world began to change and digital, you know, started to become everything, at that time, we were happy to see a revolution. You know, big agencies, big organizations don't want revolutions. They like things the way they are. We were little, and we, we welcomed it and said, look, here's this thing that, you know, this, this Internet that is going to be a magical thing, you know, rather than doing TV spots, let's think about that. And when we went to Burger King, we did a thing uh, with a chicken, this subservient chicken thing, a long, long time ago. They loved him. People can't say no to the chicken that can't say no. Everybody wants a piece of subservient chicken. And we took it to Burger King and said, we think this is really cool. It's a, it's a website. And they're like a, like a website on the World Wide Web. And we said, yeah, on the World Wide Web, it's a web. And, and we think, you know, <clears throat> people will see it and it, it can actually, they'll send it to other people. And, we, we, you know, we said, it's called viral. We think it, and they're like, yeah, make TV spots. So we actually funded it ourselves. I mean, we wrote the check to actually make that. We put it up. Um, in the first week, it got 400 million hits, and Burger King said, whoa, let's do some more of that. So, but it was, I think it was because we were small, and like I say, we were happy to see the world change. And, you know, so we decided, let's be a part of that. And was it that, those, those three initial accounts, Mini, Burger King, and Domino's, is that what took you from a Florida agency to a national slash global agency? We had we had some national business, but it was very niche. We had like some bike, you know, bike uh, bikes, and we had some like outdoor gear, and it was national. We had some business to business national stuff, but it was very small. And then um, we did this campaign in Florida, which was the, the uh, anti-teen smoking campaign, and we created a brand called Truth, and it was huge in Florida and. So when there was a big tobacco settlement and there were hundreds of millions of dollars to spend, we, together with Arnold in Boston, pitched the national account. We couldn't pitch it by ourselves because we were like 100 people, and it was a big account. So we pitched it with Arnold in Boston, and we won it. And we did. that was the first, I think, really highly visible 
national work that we did was for truth. Hey, all right, Justin from Tennessee with a note from Truth's message board, okay? Um, Ace111 said, tobacco is addictive. However, we have no right to judge a company for making profits for itself. Well, we don't want to be judgmental Ace. We're just stating the facts. Big tobacco makes money off a product that kills people. And they denied the truth about cancer and addiction for decades. Those are the facts. Judge for yourself. Um, many saw that and said, okay, these guys seem to know how to talk to, you know, the audience we're talking to, which is a younger, sort of uh, more urban audience. And, and so we got many. Um, and then, I don't know, about a year later, uh, Burger King called us. And, and, and I, I, had, I, I did a presentation in Minnesota, and I met a couple of, afterwards I met a couple of consultants who were working with Burger King, and they said, you know, Burger King's in Miami. You guys are in Miami. And the first thing I said is, we do not want Burger King. It'll ruin the agency. Um, and then a month later, we got Burger King, and, and that kind of changed everything. Hmm. Fantastic. And the Truth Campaign was very successful. As I recall, you were able to reduce smoking amongst middle school kids by almost 50%. Yeah, middle school kids, smoking went down 50%. High school kids, it went down around 25%. It was... Uh, it was a huge, if anybody in the agency ever goes to heaven, it'll be because of the truth campaign. I think, I think it's, it's maybe the most good we ever did. anti-tobacco and very specifically anti-tobacco executives. So, I mean, there were, there were some interesting times. There were a lot of letters from lawyers and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, luckily we got our own really good lawyer, and so we gutted through it. And uh, it was a terrific, and truth still exists, the brand still exists. Uh, but it was, that was, yeah, that was a, a really effective campaign, and it was... Uh, I think it was because of the strategy, because we looked at, you know, why do teenagers smoke? I mean, a cigarette is the perfect, the perfect product for a teenager because they're, they're hardwired to rebel and they can take charge of their bodies and rebel without getting tattooed or pierced. Um, and every campaign that had ever happened before, which said you shouldn't smoke, it's not healthy, just got more kids to smoke. So, you know, our whole thing was these kids are hardwired to rebel and to seek their independence, they want someone to rebel against. The easiest group to rebel against are like white guys in blue suits, and those are tobacco executives. So we made the whole campaign about, you know, here are these, here are these people who are trying to addict you to a habit that's going to kill you, and you should resist it. And it was never, we never, ever said, don't smoke, never. We just said, don't be a sucker. Um, and I think that's what made it successful. Yeah, fantastic. Early in my career, I was in sports, and I uh, got to work quite a bit with IMG and Philip Morris 
in what was the waning days of tobacco sponsorship, Marlboro Racing and right. Virginia, Virginia Slims, which as a brand really made the sport of professional women's tennis. You know, when you go back to the, you know, Chris Everett days, there was no money in women's tennis until Virginia Slims came in. And it was, there were a lot of smart people that worked for those companies. I think they hung on as long as they did and were as effective as marketers as they were. That was a huge talent pool. And I'm, you know, very anti smoking, but it was a great experience early in the career. Did you have to interface at all with folks from those companies or you just stayed away from them all or they wanted to stay away from you? Uh, No, our our interface with those companies was strictly through lawyers. Lawyers, right? I agree with you. They had great marketers. They had great marketers. I mean, some of those old campaigns, including Virginia Slims, which Mary Wells did, including Marlboro, which Leo Burnett did. This man smokes Marlboro cigarettes. What kind of a man is he? Nothing I like better than flying. Up there, I'm pilot and navigator all in one. I go where I please. Good for a man to do once in a while. You like to smoke, too? Sure. Why Marlboro? Well, it's got a good filter, and the flavor seems right to me. They were brilliant campaigns that created brands. I mean, they were, they were great. And, you know, back then, people weren't as worried about it. And also, it's, you know, I mean, from the other side of the coin, you could say, look, this is a legal product. It's not illegal. Um, we should be able to market it, which is an argument, you know. Uh, and the, the whole, you know, the whole anti-smoking thing was partly, it was partly social change, but it was also the government, you know. The government came along and said, you got to put stickers on your packs and stuff like that. So it was... Uh, it was it was a big effort and it took a while. But I don't um, for the people who were who were tobacco marketers, um, I certainly don't fault them. They were they were doing the best job they could do, um, selling a product that was you know that was a legal product to sell. So um, we could have this argument or this conversation for a long long time. And and I'm sure that probably someone's going to listen to this who's going to think, oh, you're terrible, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, uh, it was a talent pool, no question. I think the further irony, and then we'll move on, is that an awful lot of those ads featured athletes as the endorsers, which oh, yeah. in today's oh. times is unfathomable. I, I saw someone sent me a while back uh, an old, old, like, kinescope from an old black-and-white broadcast of a football game. And I don't know if you remember there. The Green Bay Packers had a player named Paul Horning, and this was probably sure back. great, great, great running back. Yeah, and, and and it was a commercial with Paul Horning saying, "Nothing relaxes me in the middle of a game like to get into the locker room for halftime and light yeah. up." And he's smoking <laughs> in the locker room at halftime. I'm like, you know, someone should run that now because that would be the greatest cigarette commercial. Guess you felt pretty good about that score, Paul. Sure did. And I feel pretty good about this cigarette too. How's that Marlboro song go? You get a lot to like. Filter, flavor, pack or box. Marlboro. Anyway. Yeah, no, they, all the athletes were, I mean, it, it, was, it was a huge part of their marketing. But now when you said, see, when you said that you used to, early in your career, were involved in sports, I thought you were referring to when you were 
the place kicker for the Eagles, but that was a different time, right? You know, that was only I only made it through the third exhibition game, and <laughs> okay. uh, right. uh, but it was it was a short and glorious career. Starting around two thousand, you really expanded. You all over the world, not only in the U.S., moving from beyond Miami to to Boulder to L.A., but across the pond to London, up north to Toronto, to Stockholm, to Copenhagen, to Brazil, Hong Kong. It, you expanded awfully quickly. Was that all client-driven? Was it Alex's ambition, which you obviously were on board with as well? I mean, that's an awful lot of growth in a short period of time. Well, you know, I mean, we were lucky because we were super hot, and, and Alex really was sort of indifferent um, to the growth. I mean, we opened in Boulder, you know, when we had one office in Miami, we were just growing so bad because we had gotten Burger King and some other big accounts. And and so we, we couldn't recruit fast enough. And, and the recruiting, our the person who was in charge of recruiting for us, Amy Miller, sat directly across the hall from me in the offices. And I could hear her talking to people. I remember we were trying to recruit some some digital creative directors, which they were back then. And she was talking to two people from Boston and one from San Francisco. And all three said, hey, I love the job. I love the agency, but I don't want to move to Miami or my husband doesn't want to move to Miami. So Alex and I talked and I said, we need, you know, we need to offer a different lifestyle. We need to, if we're going to get the people we need, we have to be someplace else. We have to give them, you know, a choice of life. So we tried to find a place that was the opposite of Miami. And we looked at Austin and we looked at Portland and we looked at Boulder, Colorado. And we're like, okay, no place is more opposite from Miami than Boulder, Colorado. And it's a nice place. Let's open an office there. It's said that where there's love, there is life. Here in Boulder, Colorado, at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, we'd have to agree with that. We didn't have a client within a thousand miles of Boulder. It was strictly about recruiting talent so that we could say to people, okay, we want you to come work for us. You can either live in Miami or Boulder, Colorado, because we're figuring most people would like one of those two places. Um, so that's why we moved to Boulder. I remember we said to the agency, because we were crazy crowded, there were probably about 650 of us in a space for 300. So we held up a sign. It was at Christmas time. We held up a big sign that says, okay, here's the news. As of July 1, we're having new office space. And everyone's like, great. And we held up another sign that said, in Boulder, Colorado. And, and I said to the agency at the time, you know, anybody who wants to move to Boulder can. It doesn't matter what account you work on or what department you're in. If you want to move to Boulder, you can. Because it's just, you know, it's just like moving up to another floor. And we figured, Alex and I figured probably 80 or 90 people would, would say that day, over 200 people came to me and said, I want to move to Boulder. So it was, you know, that's how that happened. And then the rest of them, you know, were partly driven, partly driven by Burger King because Burger King wanted us to do their work in Europe. So that's where London came from. Sweden came from, we needed a hundred great digital people. And there was this terrific agency in Sweden called Daddy. In, in Gothenburg, Sweden, that we had been working with. And we said, look, it, maybe rather than trying to hire 100 digital people, we'll just buy Daddy, which is what we did. So that's where we got our 100 digital people. And then, you know, some of the other stuff, Brazil was a whole different thing. Brazil, 
these three guys came to me who were a creative team who were probably the best known or among the best known creatives in Brazil. They won everything at Cannes. They all came to see me in Miami and said, we want to start our own agency and we want to be CPB Brazil. And I said, I know your work. Okay. And that's where Brazil came from. It started with an account executive, a writer, and an art director, and an assistant. That was it, four people. And, you know, now they're close to 200 people. They're the fastest-growing agency there. But that started because I fell in love with these creatives and said, okay, take our brand. So they all kind of came about differently. And, and you know, Asia came from Infinity. Infinity wanted us to be doing their, their advertising in Asia, so we... So we opened first in Hong Kong and then in Beijing. So there wasn't a plan. They were all just sort of, there was no strategy. It was all just tactics. We said, yeah, this is a good idea. This is a good idea. So that's that's how that growth happened. So let's talk now about the whole uh, start of the relationship with Miles and with MDC. How did that begin? Um, Well, you know, when we were, when we were getting sort of well-known, um, people started approaching us, you know, and, and a lot of the big networks approached us. And, you know, we, I had conversations with Frank Lowe and, and all of these guys. And it was, um, and, and we began to think about, you know, maybe uh, at this point it would be not a bad time to take some money off the table. And we never wanted to sell controlling interest in the agency, but we were willing to sell uh, a piece of the agency because, you know, both Alex and I, I mean, pretty much, our whole net worth was in the agency. And we thought, well, you know, sometimes it's smart to take some chips off the table. So we talked to a bunch of people and, um, uh, I was at a conference somewhere. I think, I can't remember. I think it was in Bermuda and a a woman who worked at the time for the the predecessor of MDC came and talked to me and said, you know, you guys, you know, you guys are getting a really well known, you do great work. Um, we would love to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, I don't have any idea who you are, but, you know, we'll be happy to have a conversation. And so Miles flew down to Miami, and I met with him. And, and all, the other, uh, all the other networks and agencies that were talking to us, their basic story was, look, you guys are clever and you're doing some pretty hot work. We can teach you how to grow your agency and make it, you know, make it uh, stronger financially, and we'll, we'll show you how to run it. And Miles came down and said, I don't know a lot about advertising, but I hear you guys are great. Everyone loves you, um, and I just want to get a piece of it, and, I, uh, and I'll leave you alone. And we said, okay, all right, that sounds pretty good. So it just sort of, it sort of evolved from there, and we talked a bunch, and they were willing to do a minority deal. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I looked at it and said, from – for me personally, because I, I was a majority shareholder, I said, okay, you know, I'm like past 50. Uh, I'm not ever going to be a freelance writer again. Um, you know, this is an opportunity to get some independence. And, and I like this guy, and he's fun, and he's going to leave us alone. So we did our initial deal in 2000, and initially it was, um, it was I think, a, a three- or a five-year buyout. We kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until finally, uh, I don't think that, I don't think the deal was finished until about 2011, uh, which was great for them. And it was great for us. And, you know, Miles was always really flexible and Miles, you know, Miles understood, which I think, I think, you know, I think smart, smart 
people in this industry understand. He understood very, very instinctively that, you know, the, the reason clients are coming here is because of the work and the people. They're not coming because of the brand. They're not coming because of the scale. So he was always very, uh, you know, v- very sort of protective of the idea of doing great work and of, you know, of the people who were running it. He didn't see anybody as being interchangeable. He saw everybody as being essential. I guess one slight similarity that we share is we both sort of been doing the same thing for a long period of time. Yes. And, and, and had the same email address for a long time, the same phone number for a long time. And when you look at, you know, all the shrapnel that uh, we've seen on the sidelines over the last, you know, 20 some odd years, the common thread to the companies that have not been successful was poor leadership. And the common thread for the companies that have been are strong leadership and continuity in a lot of cases of, of senior leadership teams. So I think you can talk technology from today till tomorrow, but this is still a people business. Well, it is. And the thing is, you know, now especially, you know, technology, everybody's got the same tech. Everybody knows the same thing. You know, it's easy to get information. Um, everybody knows it. it it's Scale doesn't really matter anymore because, you know, three people sitting in a Starbucks can do brilliant campaigns that get executed globally. So, um, well, actually, they can't be sitting in a Starbucks now, sitting 10 feet away in a Starbucks. Um, But, it, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that that's, you know, going back to what you said before, that's probably another another sort of impetus for this whole gig thing and, and cause it's so easy, but I, yeah, I think that, I think that that's true. And it's interesting because, um, uh, if, if this is my sports analogy, if you, somebody showed me a thing a while back, if you look at football teams that are consistently NFL teams that are consistently on top, the Patriots and the Packers and people like that, one of the consistencies among them is they don't change a lot. You know, I mean, I think some you know the Green Bay Packers have had like four quarterbacks in forty years. You know, whereas teams that you know have three a year. So, I, consistency matters, and and that sort of the um, the institutional memory that you get when people are there for a while. I I think um, I think it matters, and I think you know I think change is good, but I think change at the top is really hard. Tell us about the Million Dollar Challenge, because I know you spearheaded that effort. And at that time, around 2011, that was an awfully big deal. Well, it was, you know, Miles and I were talking a lot. And, and, and we, at the time back then, in 2010, 2011, you know, obviously digital was becoming everything. You know, digital was, was it. But there weren't a lot of really well-trained um, digital executors, either creatively or, or navigation, execution, stuff like that. Nobody could find them. They were so hard to get. So I said to Miles, you know what we ought to do? We ought to start a school. We ought to start a school that, that will produce these guys or these people. So he and I talked about it a lot, and Miles said, okay, let, let's put up a million bucks for whoever comes up with the best idea to do that. Um, and so we did. We announced it at Cannes, on the main stage at Cannes. And we said, you know, whoever comes up with the best idea to, 
to um, to produce more digital thinkers for marketing, and we you know we we got I guess about a hundred entries. Um, nine or ten of them were really great. A lot of them were from China or South Korea or places where it would be impossible for us to manage it. Um, and a couple great ones were from the U.S. and and the one that we picked was the one that was um, designed to start this school um, to to partner with a university to create a new curriculum for basically digital marketing creatives. Uh, and that seemed like a good idea. And we talked to a few schools. I was on a board at Wharton at the time, and I talked to Wharton about it, um, but Wharton didn't really need a million bucks. I think they have plenty of money. Um, so, the, so we talked to the University of Colorado, and you know what we thought about that is, look, if, if we can get talented kids to come to Colorado for this one-year course, and they're going to be in Boulder, Colorado, many of them will say, wow, I love it. I want to live here. And we're right down the street. So it was sort of, it was sort of a lot of self-interest involved. But that's what we did. We started Boulder Digital Works um, with the University of Colorado. And it was, um, it was a really interesting program. We, we partnered with some of the professors over there from computer sciences and from the journalism school. And it was, it was great while it lasted, but then ultimately everybody had it. You know, all the schools, you know, everybody saw the need. So the programs became pretty commonplace. And so I think we were less interesting. And also we didn't, we weren't really contributing a lot to running the school. Basically we were sending teachers over and, and ultimately, they, you know, they said we're going to combine this with other um, sort of programs at the University of Colorado. And so we said, okay, maybe it's time for us to get out of the school business. But for the six or seven years it was up and running, it was a great thing. Um, and I and we never got our million bucks back, but that's okay. It was worth a million bucks. Did it produce talent for you? It produced some. Yeah, it produced talent for everyone. You know, the very first class that graduated, there were I think. 14 kids in it and something like that. And I think we got three of them, Goodby, who came and became a part of it, and they had some guest lectures, took most of them. And they took them before they even graduated, which I kind of thought was, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's kind of cheating. But, I mean, it was cool. It, it produced some really terrific kids. Um, and they went to they went to Wyden, they went to Goodby, they went a lot of different places. And I guess we got our share of Fantastic. So jumping ahead to the present day, you know, you've become almost an outlier in that you're still at the top of your game. You're still the public face and leader of the agency. Um, But an awful lot of the people of your generation that were in similar positions have retired and moved on. When you reflect just privately you know, I know you still love what you do. I know you're still great at what you do. Um, how does it feel to be sort of the last man standing at the corral? Lonely. It's kind of, it's kind of lonely. <laughs> it, it, it's, um, I, you know, I, I, it's really circumstances. I mean, I, I like it and it's fun, but I mean, I haven't been sort of day-to-day involved with the agency, you know, with clients and stuff like that for a long time. Um, I look at some of the creative that we do. I look at some of the new business that we do, but but I really haven't been, you know, because I'm too old, you know, and 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 
and I don't have the energy. I mean, it's a lot of work to be good, and I don't have that much energy anymore. Um, but I think that I think I, I it this has been a hard thing for me. Actually, I I, I at someone's suggestion, I said, okay, look, I got to transition out. You know, it's time for me to. And they said, okay, well, you got to go see a shrink because otherwise you're going to go crazy. So I so I went to to see this woman. I've talked to her a few times about transitioning and stuff like that. But it's you know, I, I need to do it. Uh, and I'm not, I, you know, Martin Sorrell is a friend of mine and we're contemporaries. We're the exact same age. And so I, I've talked to him periodically and like, you know, like, when are you going to leave? Stuff like that. And then he went through his whole thing and started a whole new thing. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that. So uh, it's, it feels kind of like it's kind of getting to be time. Um <clears throat> And it, it's kind of time to become, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this. It doesn't sound like immodest and stupid, but uh, I, I kind of like the, de- the idea of like, uh, of really being, still being a part of the industry, but being less a part of the agency. And I yeah. think that's probably no, what well said. will happen. Well said. Great. Well, listen, we want you around as long as you want to be around. Well, um, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And last, uh, last question, Chuck. Early in your career, you can answer any way you like or right up until today. Who are some of the great minds that you look at when you need inspiration or who have really inspired you or, or who you just admire? Bill Bernbach. Now, here's a uh, very good example of how research uh, can get in the way, actually. We took this out to consumers and the consumer said, well, you're saying uh, Avis is only number two. And if Avis is number two, they're not number one. And if they're not number one, you're obviously not the best. Well, we looked at this research, and I think perhaps that uh, most organizations would have said that this is a dangerous campaign to run. However, we came to the conclusion that we should run it, and we uh, went ahead with it. And we probably ran one of the great, great money-making campaigns. We started this campaign. This company was $3 million in the red, and about a year later, they were over a million and a quarter in the black. Now, what did this? Our campaign is not that we're number two. Our campaign is that we try harder. And we know that it's human nature to believe that if you're number two, you will try hard to get to be number one. It's the nature of uh, human beings to be ambitious and to try to get to the top. And people believed us. Now, in addition to... uh, uh, believing that we are ambitious and want to get to the top, they felt we were the underdog, and people like to ally themselves with the underdog. They like to feel that they're helping someone get ahead. No. I mean, there are others, but he's the, you know, he's the guy that I think changed everything. I, I wrote a, a piece in a book, a piece about, it was actually a book about the automotive business, and it was a section on automotive advertising. And so I thought a lot, and I looked at a bunch of old car ads from, the 40s and 50s, all the way through now, do do, and I, as I was looking at, it, I realized Bill Bernbach with the Volkswagen campaign changed everything. Have you ever wondered how the man who drives a snowplow drives to the snowplow? This one drives a Volkswagen. We will find in so much of our work a seeming disparagement, perhaps, of our own product. And we are perfectly willing to do that if in telling the true disparagement we get you to believe the other things we say in an ad. 
everything before that had sort of one voice or point of view, and everything after that was different. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, not just because of the fact of the way he thought, because there are a lot of good ideas, but the fact that he got people to buy it and he got the work made, that's, you know, that's an amazing thing. So uh, he, he, in the advertising business, he has always been um, someone that I've most admired because um, I really do think he changed the world. Uh, and then, you know, and then there's a whole bunch of other people. Uh, none of them are politicians. I probably oughtn't to say that. Uh, but that's, you know, that if, if there's sort of a North Star in this business, I think he's it. And, and there are a lot of other really smart people and people who are contemporaries of mine and, and that I think have been, uh, I mean, I think Pat Fallon changed things also because, you know, up until then, you know, the agencies, up until the mid-80s, mostly, mostly, with a few exceptions, agencies were in New York or Chicago, right? Jay Chiat did some exciting stuff and put Los Angeles on the map. You know, uh, uh, Dan Wyden was just starting in Portland and beginning to put that on the map, but that was one client. That was only Nike. But Fallon, all of a sudden, Fallon got the Wall Street Journal. He got Federal Express. He got these big accounts to go to Minneapolis. We have got to cut cost, people. Ideas. We could open an account on FedEx.com, save 10% on online express shipping. Okay, how about this? We open an account on FedEx.com, we save 10% on online express shipping. That is wonderful. You just said the same thing I said, only you did this. No, I did this. That is what made clients, it gave clients permission to not be in New York or Chicago. It gave clients permission to say, okay, shit, there's this brilliant work coming out of Minneapolis. Maybe we could have an agency in Richmond, or maybe we could have an agency in Boston, or maybe we could have an agency in Miami. So I think that he's another guy who really changed the landscape. Um, and I appreciate it. And I've told him before he died, I told him many times, thanks, eh? That was helpful. Well, listen, uh, when, I, when I think to myself, who are the great minds who I've been lucky enough to get to spend time with, you are at the top of that list. And we've had a lot of fun with you in Tokyo where you joined us. And, and uh, uh, I was looking forward to this conversation and knew you'd be terrific. And you, you never fail to deliver. So thanks so much, Chuck. And, and I want you around for a long, long, long time. Well, I appreciate it. I, I've, I'm keeping myself quarantined, so I had to make it through this. Terrific. All right, pal. Thanks, speak Matt. To you soon. I appreciate it. I'll see you one of these days. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.